Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host. Thank you so very, very much for being here, for tuning in. It's always appreciated. If you could interact with the product a little bit, like, comment, subscribe, written review, star rating, any and all of that, and most importantly, sharing. Let other people know about the show, be that in real life or purely on the digital realm, however that works, or both. Both is good. Both is usually good. Uh, any of that, again, it all helps a lot, and I am eternally grateful for any of you that listen. Uh, it, it means a lot to me. I do this because I enjoy it. I say that all the time. Uh, and if there's anyone out there listening, that's more than enough for me to continue having a good time talking about the stuff that I enjoy. So, thank you very, very much, as always. On the agenda this evening, last night, UFC on ESPN 39. was a card? Uh, not the worst. Not the worst card, not the best. But we will go over all of the results from that. And this upcoming week, early in the morning, actually, UFC on ABC 3 this Saturday, the, uh, the prelims begin at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. So if you're planning on watching this live, depending on where you are in the world, that might be a pain in the butt. It is for me. That's 9 in the morning where I live. I live in Mountain Standard Time. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not terribly happy about that. <laughs> I am not a morning person and have not been since I was in utero. But we'll have a full preview of that event and news of the week such as it exists. All right. Uh, with all of that out of the way, let's jump right in. I don't have anything else to really go over here. UFC on ESPN 39. Your main event. Rafa there can be only one, uh, Rafael. Rafael Fiziev defeats Rafael Dos Anjos. And <laughs> I've just got to say, the fact that in the immediate aftermath he said, we now know who the best Rafael is in the UFC, but I wish to be the best Rafael in the world, so Rafael Nadal, I'm coming for you. Uh... Uh, Rafael Nadal, of course, being one of the all-time great tennis pros, who just recently had to bow out of the Wimbledon that's going on. I believe it's Wimbledon. If it's not Wimbledon, it's the U.S. Open. So again, forgive me, I forget exactly which one's good. But major tennis tournament, and Nadal is again, he is one of the all-time greats. He's a if, if you appreciate tennis, I know plenty of people who appreciate it more than I do. I do in kind of a surface level. He is a He's a genuinely remarkable, arguably the greatest ever. Like, he's phenomenal. And he just immediately, like, he had that, he had that rehearsed. Like, he had that ready to go. Like, I will be the best Raphael in all humanity, and Nadal, I'm coming for you. <laughs> uh, Fazeev's got a fun, it doesn't always come across, I don't know if it's a language barrier or whatnot, but he's got a kind of a funny little personality. Uh, the fight itself was, uh, so again, Fiziev wins. He knocks out Dos Anjos with punches 18 seconds into the fifth and final round. The fight itself went about, I think, how a lot of us expected it to. Uh, I gave Dos Anjos the, I think it was the fourth round I gave him. It was three or four, I can't remember. One of those two rounds. I forget which one specifically, but so forgive me, but the other... Yeah, the other three rounds I thought were pretty clearly for Fazeev. Uh They traded some kicks at distance. Uh, Fazeev kept doing to do his, um, looking for his lean back. Like, he does that, you know, kind of limbo, like, Matrix thing. He got kind of famous for doing it. 
Someone kicks at his head. He just bends backwards at the waist and lets it kind of shoot over. He kept trying to do that. Uh, Dos Anjos doesn't really kick to the head. He kicks to the body a lot. So he actually landed a few of them when Fazeev was trying to do the lean back. It's great for getting your head out of the way if you're limber enough and fast enough to do it. But it doesn't do much for your body. It does some, but not much. And he kept getting hit in the body when trying to do it. It was a little bit of a misread on his part, I think. But anytime they got into kind of punching range, Fazeev has some fast hands, and he's really good about varying his speed and intensity. Sometimes it's just kind of touching. Then he'll pepper in with all of the little, you know, tap, tap, boom. Uh, which is a really effective way to fight. Uh, this is one of the things you have to try and get newer people to do. And not even newer people, like newer people, depending on where you're starting from. Like you have to, If you have to build them from the beginning, then the number of people who don't even know how to make a proper fist or how to punch with a proper fist is shockingly high. But once you get people, you know, kind of sparring a bit more and you need to get them to kind of work on their energy and whatnot... Uh, that's one of the things you, you have to get them to do. You vary your speed. Not everything is 100%. You know, not everything's full intensity. You, you can't fight that way. It's it's not sustainable physiologically. So you just kind of, all right. I mean, even if it wasn't physiological, if everything's always the same, it's easier to predict defensively. If I know every punch you throw is going to be a certain amount of speed, a certain amount of intensity, et cetera, et cetera, it, it becomes more predictable. So you vary it. Some punches come a little bit slower. Some come a little bit faster. Some... Harder, softer, you, you start to vary that up. And he's very good about that. He is really good. Uh, especially the longer this fight went on. It's like, okay, tap, 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 boom, tap, tap. Like, just kind of mixing that up. And it got to Dos Anjos a little bit. The the body work from Fiziev, I think, got to Dos Anjos a little bit at various points. He got away from it. And I think that was, I think it was a bit of a mistake. There were a few different points when he would catch Dos Anjos with some kind of a body kick. And it would just, you could see the posture shift a little bit. And Dos Anjos has a great poker face. But you could see, again, not just the body posture, but if you, uh, one of the ways you can tell your body work is paying off is if the opponent stops doing what they were doing. If they were coming forward pretty aggressively, you catch them to the body, even if they don't show a whole lot, if they stop coming forward, if they stop throwing, if they take a second, that worked. And I think his bodywork was getting to Dos Anjos at a few different points. Uh, never enough to you know, really kind of lock him up or anything, but enough to deter his pressure. The takedown defense from Fiziev held up very, very well. I think Dos Anjos was officially credited with one takedown. A lot of clinching where Fiziev did quite well against a guy who was very good on the clinch. And I certainly don't mean to imply that Dos Anjos had nothing for Fiziev the whole fight. He landed some good punches. He landed some good body kicks. You know, Dos Anjos was... He's just a... hes a, I have a lot of respect for Dos Anjos. Just let, me, let me preface what I'm about to say with that. I have advocated for him as a genuine great in the lightweight division's history. He's been with the UFC forever. Like He debuted for the UFC in 2008. That's only a few years after I graduated from high school. Like This guy's been in the... And look at who he's fought. He fought everybody at lightweight, uh, including you know, the best lightweights of his era. He took the belt from Anthony Pettis when most people didn't expect him to. He beat, uh, he smoked Donald Cerrone to defend it. 
He was beating Eddie Alvarez before Alvarez kind of caught him with that punch that led to him losing the belt. But he fought uh, Tony Ferguson in Mexico for five rounds, Mexico City for five rounds. He fought Habib. Uh, he lost both of those fights, but he fought everybody. Then he moved up to welterweight, and look at who he fought at welterweight for crying out loud. He fought the two best welterweights in the world, in the UFC certainly. He fought both Usman and Covington. He fought Robbie Lawler. He fought Michael Chiesa. He fought Leon Edwards. Like those are argue, you could argue the three best welterweights in the UFC right now, and I think this is probably accurate. Usman, Covington, and Edwards. And he fought all three of them. And frankly, was he lost fairly, but he was not obliterated. I don't think none of them finished him. Now that's not the craziest thing in the world when you consider when he fought Usman. I mean, he fought Usman 2018, so Usman wasn't you know, much of a finisher at that point. He fought Covington before that. Uh, the Covington fight was an interim title fight too, wasn't it? Yeah. Was lightweight champion, fought for the interim belt at welterweight, fought everybody. I mean, he beat Benson Henderson. That was his big coming out win. You know, when Henderson was not too far off of his lightweight title reign, he beat Nate Diaz. He beat the crap out of Nate Diaz. If you haven't seen that fight, look it up. He abuses Diaz. He beat, you know, again, as I mentioned, Pettis for the belt. Uh, he just fought everybody over a fairly lengthy UFC tenure at this point. And we're talking 14 years. Uh, nearly 15, right? When did he debut? November of 08. He's coming up on 14 years and a lot of fights in the UFC. And a lot of fights in general. This is his 45th professional fight. Uh, this was the first time he'd been stopped with strikes since the Alvarez fight, actually. So the first time in, what, July of 16? So, first time in six years. Yeah, little, just uh, literally a shade over six years. Uh, the man is a great, he is forgotten, he is slept on, he is overlooked. And it's a crying shame. So, uh, that is, keep that in mind when I say what I'm about to say. At this point in his career, he was here to be a very, very stiff test for a guy that looks like he's very much on the come up. And he was that. He tested Fazeev's grappling. He tested his clinch work. He tested his cardio. This wasn't fought at the craziest pace, but it was not a... This was not a slow fight. And Fazeev, to his credit, passed every one of those tests with flying colors, more or less. Uh, he did a... He did a great job with his offensive shot selection. Did a good job defensively wrestling. This was a really big fight for Fazeev, and... To get a finish that late in a fight uh, is a bit of a rarity. To do it over a guy like Dos Anjos, even rarer. Like I said, that's the second time in several years. How many times has he been finished with strikes overall? Uh, th yeah, he, this guy's only been stopped via TKO or knockout three times in his entire career. He had the knockout against Jeremy Stevens in his UFC debut, the TKO to Alvarez, and then this one. And that's it. Uh, that guy's insanely durable. And you you take him out, that says something. So, a uh, lot of credit to Fazeev. 
he said after the fact that, you know, he wants to fight, I mean, the jokes about uh, Nadal aside, he wants to fight someone near in the top five. He was 10 coming into this, Dos Anjos was seven. Uh, I think he and Justin Gaethje started kind of chirping at each other. I don't, I mean, who in the world would complain about that fight? Lightweight's got a, lightweight's a bit complicated. I went over this a little bit last week when talking about the potential addition of Alexander Volkanovsky to the title picture. You had Gamrod, who just had a breakthrough fight. You have Fazeev, who's now going to be deserving of a top five opponent. You've got Makashev and Oliveira, theoretically, the obvious fight for the vacant title. You've got Michael Chandler and Dustin Poirier. Again, a very... I would think that's an obvious fight to make. Whether or not it gets made is an entirely different issue, but who could... You know, those two going at it, like, yes, please. <laughs> please, yes. So you've got a lot of guys... I mean, and uh, Gamrot called out Gagey, and very few people do that. So you've got a lot of guys right now who are just kind of stewing around, and you're going to get some great fights out of these out of these fighters. So I'm... Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see what exactly happens, but Fazeev is definitely deserving of another big-name opponent, certainly a high-ranking opponent. Uh, Dude is a legitimate contender at this point, and good for him. He were, uh, the finishing sequence, actually, was really nice. He's fighting Orthodox... He throws a step-through knee, so he starts orthodox, throws the knee, lands forward into southpaw. As he lands, he throws a right hand that just kind of brings Dos Andres' guard up, kind of slaps at it, and then he follows up with a left overhand. Dos Andres seems to think that that left overhand is coming lower than it is, because Dos Andres uh, is also southpaw. So now that left is coming over his lead shoulder, and instead of getting down behind the lead shoulder with the guard high, he kind of reaches out to kind of parry, the shoulder relaxes, it's not as high... Uh, gives a nice opening for the punch to connect to the jaw. Perfectly fine stoppage. You know, Dos Anjos never complained about it. Uh, he got dropped. His head kind of bounced off the canvas. Another punch followed up. Like, I know he did not appear to be completely out. You know, The referee waves it off and he kind of half sits up. But he knew he was out. Uh, very, very good stoppage by the referee in this one. So I uh, wanted to say that. I don't know what's next for Dos Anjos. The man is 30, what? Seven. He will be 38 in October, actually. That's pretty old for lightweight. It just is. Uh, he wants, he apparently wants to stay busy at least to kind of, I, I don't know if he's, he's not, I don't think he's going to become a legitimate title contender again. I, I'm not sure that's in the cards for him at this point. So if he just wants to make some more money before he has to retire, then he'll probably want to keep a busier schedule. Uh, I He could fight a lot of people in that division. They will make for great fights. He will be a very, very difficult test for them. But I do think his title challenging days are probably over at this point. And we should enjoy him while we still can because he's not going to be here too much longer is my hunch. You, know, you, you, you close in on 50 fights... This many, over a decade with the UFC, always willing to fight the toughest opponents. That adds up. And, he, I mean, he trained with Shootbox for a while. So, uh, not just Shootbox, but, uh, sorry, not Shootbox. Um, Cordero's camp, King's MMA. Because Cordero was the Shootbox guy. He might be again. I forget exactly where he trained. But, uh, you know, Cordero's philosophy is, you know, you go to war in the gym. <laughs> 
so Dos Anjos was part of some very heavy sparring training sessions and whatnot. So I guarantee you, you know, he's been through it physically. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much longer we're going to have him in the sport, but enjoy him while he lasts. And can we get some appreciation for what he has done? Because I, I don't think enough people understand how great he is. That was your main event. Uh, again, solid fight. Really solid fight. Co-main event. Kayo Bahalio defeats Armin Petrosian via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Uh, Bohalia was just able to get Petrosian down, get his back, threaten him, work from there. Third round, I think I gave to Petrosian. That one was a lot more on the feet, but by that point, Petrosian was just too far behind the eight ball to make anything really happen. Uh, not a great fight, but... Eh. Uh, Bantamweight. That's a pretty good fight. Said Nurmagomedov defeats Douglas Silva de Andrade via unanimous decision. 130-27 that I did not agree with in 229-28, which I did. I thought Silva de Andrade kind of stole the first round. Um, is it the first? Yeah, what, was the one with the, what was the one where they both got dropped? Hang on, I might be misremembering. Yeah, I, I am. I think I'm misremembering. Because um, there was one fight... Yeah, okay, no, no. Malarkey and Johnson's the one that I'm thinking of. Okay, so, yeah. Nurmagomedov, I believe, got dropped kind of near the end of the first. I thought that was enough for uh, Dandros to steal it. Assuming I'm remembering correctly. There was one round where Nurmagomedov did the majority of the quality work, but there was something kind of near the end that was impactful enough to sway the score, to sway the round for me. Most of this was Nurmagomedov, uh, superior striker, incredibly fast, incredibly dexterous kicker. Working at distance, he had some good takedowns. Anytime they got purely into boxing range, uh, Deandrade had, had a power advantage, was able to find the target. Here's the other thing about Nurmagomedov. He defaults to spinning way too often, and Silva Deandrade made him pay for it a little bit. He's got to get a... He's got to be more judicious about that because better fighters than Silva de Andrade are going to really punish him for that. Just as a thought. But you know, Sayyid Nurmagomedov is a very, very good fighter. Uh, it's a very good kicks. Good takedowns. Uh, he's legit. He's a legitimate rising force at bantamweight. So good for him. This was a perfectly fine fight. Uh, heavyweights, Chase Sherman defeated Jared Vander via TKO punches 310 of the third. This was a crappy heavyweight fight. I don't have much of anything to say about this one. Uh, bantamweight, Eamon Zahabi defeated Ricky Tercios via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Funny thing about this fight, I believe... I believe in this fight, Ricky Tercios had the lowest percentage... Of successful offense. He, we've seen fights where somebody doesn't get off a strike. So, to the extent that I understand that zero is infinitely less than one, which is actually mathematically true. But, to the extent that someone was like able to have a degree of success, Tercios threw... I'm, I'm going to pull up the specific stats because this was funny. Like, this... This was almost a comical stat line. I don't have a whole lot to say about the fight. Because there wasn't a whole lot to it, but... 
Yeah, Tercios in terms of total strikes. Uh, he was, tw over all three rounds, he was 27 of 235. <laughs> he landed 11% of his significant strike, of his significant strikes. Everything, actually, everything he threw was significant. They, for however they differentiate significant and insignificant strikes, everything he threw was deemed significant. He was, he had a, an 11% success, uh, accuracy rate. Like, that is horrible. <laughs> I mean, no one again, no one lands 100% of the time, and if you can kind of get... What does Zahabi land at? Zahabi landed at 51%, which is pretty good. Uh, I think I've said that before. If you can land every other strike you throw, that's really good. Uh, uh, so you're at your percentage of success is in MMA in particular is a little bit like baseball. It's not quite as low as baseball batting averages, you know, where if you see someone that's hitting, you know, uh, high 300s, like, that's really good. You know, anyone only landing 33%, that's that's on the low side, but, you know, that 40 to 50 is a lot is a lot closer to, I think, believe, the UFC average. And you get the high-end guys, like, high 50s, low 60s. But 11% is, like, that's one of the lowest ones of these I've ever seen. Tercios did a lot of Fainting with key eyes, he had a lot of just striking that never got close. And Zahabi just made him miss, countered him, chipped at him from the outside, got him. Like, this is not a very interesting fight. But I did want to point out the statistical bit there. Uh, yeah, 11% accuracy. Oof. And I'm not trying to dogpile on Ricky Tercios. I don't think Tercios is a bad fighter. But for the sake of this fight in particular, that is a that is a rough statistic. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Jamie Malarkey defeats Michael Johnson via split decision. 129-28 for Johnson, 229-28 for Malarkey. This was your fight of the night. These two had a fun little brawl. Uh, both of them got dropped in the first round. Uh, pretty handily, actually. <laughs> uh, I think that I think that saved the round for Malarkey, actually. He gets dropped by Johnson with a left hand at one point. He fights back up. And then towards the end of the round, he drops Johnson. And once the knockdowns are essentially equalized, and I do think that Johnson's knockdown was more emphatic and probably was a bit more impactful than Malarkey's. But when you factor Malarkey's knockdown along with all of the other work he'd done throughout the course of that round, I thought it was enough to get to sway the round for him. Second round was a big round for Malarkey. He... Uh, yeah, he went to town on Johnson in that round. Johnson kind of recovered in the third, and we got a uh, really nice finishing sequence down the stretch. These two just beat the crap out of each other. Uh, Malarkey's commitment to just kind of consistent work ultimately was kind of the difference maker here. Uh, Johnson has fast hands. He's still got some power, pretty obviously. So it needs to be acknowledged, but... He's uh, just on the old side, older side of things. You know, he's been with the UFC for a long time. He's had moments of brilliance, but he's never really been able to string everything together. You know, on his best night, on his best performance, Johnson is legitimately world class. Uh, and I'm sure there are maybe specific fighters and champions that even on his best night, he's never going to beat. I don't think he ever beats Khabib, but if you'll recall, you know, people, I think people oversell 
what he did in that first little bit of the first round against Khabib because they're just kind of desperate to find chinks in Khabib's armor. But he did land some punches on the guy, and Khabib was not easy to hit. Uh, he stopped Dustin Poirier, which is not an easy thing to do at all, necessarily, especially with strikes. So, again, on his best night, he's really good, but he's never found consistency. Malarkey was just a consistently better fighter throughout the course of this one. Again, fight of the night, deservedly so. Fun little brawl. No real complaints. Um, we did lose a fight between Cynthia Calvillo and Nina Nunes. Um, Nunes had some kind of a stomach issue and illness-related and withdrew from the fight. They rescheduled it for later. But if you're wondering what happened to that fight, uh, yeah, that's what happened to that fight. As for the prelims... Uh, Cody Brundage defeats Trasan Gore via knockout punches, 350 of the third, excuse me, of the first. Um, Gore, Brundage, Brundage noted this when he talked about it. Um, he got a good takedown, only got kind of the one. Gore fought back to his feet, but anytime Gore would throw a leg kick, he does, he wasn't great about moving his head when he was throwing the kicks. And Brundage snuck a right hand between his guard, clipped him on the chin, dropped him, and then he got on top and pounded him out. Solid win for Brundage. Gorp, and I don't mean this unkindly, but Gore should probably not be in the UFC. Uh, I think this is true of pretty much everyone who has, you know, three... He came into the UFC with three fights. Uh, yeah, it was only three, because he... They tried to... I don't want to say that the fights on The Ultimate Fighter don't mean anything, because I think that's it's a little bit dismissive, and I don't mean that. But they don't mean what the UFC wants you to think they mean. They are they are legitimate fights in the sense that you you know you train, you have two you are sanctioned by the Athletic Commission, you sanctioned as a as an exhibition because of how they're reported, but you got two guys in there trying to knock each other out. So it's legitimate in that respect. But if your thought process is, well, you got three professional fights and then you won a couple of, you won three fights on tough. Well, you've really got a record of six fights, right? No, one, two, even with six fights, I don't think you should be in the UFC. It's just, it's way too soon. You know, Trisan Gore is not being done any favors by being in the UFC at this point. Uh, women's flyweight Antonina Shevchenko defeated Courtney Casey via split decision. Uh, 29-28. Again, one for Casey, two for Shevchenko. Little bit of controversy here. A lot of people thought Casey won. If you scored this fight for Casey, I am not disagreeing with you. I think you can go 29-28 either way. It's su it always sucks when the person who wins the most definitive round loses the fight. Most definitive round of this fight, third round for Courtney Casey, bar none. No ifs, ands, or buts. That was the most definitive, again, most definitive round. But you could pretty easily see the other two for, oh, I meant to say this about the Johnson and Malarkey fight. Little, again, peep, it was split, little bit of controversy there. I, I think 29-28 either way is perfectly fine. Um, it, it te I think that fight tends to hinge on the first round. So, 
And which knockdown did you think was more impactful or which knockdown uh, was better when you factor in everything else that happened in the round? You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, Casey joins like, she joined, who, is, who are the other people who have this stat? Angela Hill, Jorge Masvidal, um, who was the fourth? The Clay Guida, I believe it was, who have lost like four fights via split decision. Uh, it sucks for Casey, it really does. This fight could have gone her way. There is certainly an argument for it. I scored it for Shevchenko, but... I don't think you can be. I don't think anyone can be sour about 29-28 either way here. I, I just I don't think that's. The, you can think Casey won and still go and still understand that there's an argument for a Shevchenko scorecard. Uh, featherweight David Onama defeated Garrett Armfield via technical submission arm triangle choke in the second. Armfield took this fight on short notice. He replaced Austin Lingo like on less than a week's notice. Almost makes me wonder, look at these two physically. I almost wonder if Armfield isn't more of a bantamweight. He was a fair bit uh, smaller than Onama. Uh, solid performance from Onama. You know, uh, good finish. If you can find the whole finishing sequence here, this is a really nice example of maintaining a submission attempt while the other guy is going through some proper defense. Uh Armfield ran through a bunch of things to do to try and fight the arm triangle, and Onama never panicked, he never overcommitted and overadjusted trying to defend. And there's he is adjusting the whole time because you have to when they're defending, but he never overcorrects, he never overcommits, he stays committed to the attack, and uh Armfield is never able to get the big escape with the uh with the defenses he's using and ultimately winds up again unconscious. So Solid enough win for Onama. Let's see. Light heavyweight action. Kennedy Zichukwu defeated Carl Robertson via TKO. This was punches and elbows from mountain back mount. Uh, 219 of the third. The size difference here was significant. Uh, and Chukwu did some good wrestling here. Uh, not a whole lot to... There's not really a lot to go over here. He was the bigger man. Imposed that particular strategy. Got on top. Pounded him out. Uh, yeah. And kicking off the, the entire event, Saeed Yakub Kakramanov defeated Ronnie Lawrence via unanimous decision, 30-27 twice, and then a 30-26. I didn't quite get a 30-26, get a 10-8 in any of those three rounds, but uh, I don't, I don't hate it. Um, Kakramanov looked really good here. Uh, better striker. For, uh, better, he got takedowns on a guy who was uh, I think somebody, uh, the stats guy, I believe, mentioned it on Twitter that coming into this fight between Ronnie Lawrence's appearance on the Contender Series and his UFC fights, uh, he had not been taken down and had scored a lot of takedowns. I'm saying north of 20 across those three fights. And uh, Hakramanov out-wrestled him pretty thoroughly. Uh, I've been... I think I said for a while that I... Uh, Kokromanov kind of impressed me with some of the stuff he'd done outside the UFC. I, I liked his debut. So, pay attention to that guy. Bantamweight, a lot of talented fighters. 
Right, that was the event. Your bonuses, I mentioned one of the... I usually mention Fight of the Night when discussing about Fight of the Night. Malarkey and Johnson, no issues. Performances of the night went to Raphael Fiziev and Chase Sherman. I think they did Onama dirty there a little bit. Would have given the bonus to Onama before I gave it to Sherman. Uh, heck, I would have given it to Brundage before I gave it to Sherman. Uh, don't... But, you know, the UFC brass like what they like. And uh, Sherman and Vandera was kind of a sloppy... It wasn't as slow as other heavyweight fights, and it didn't feature nearly as much clinching, so I imagine certain people who make these kinds of decisions were like, yes, that's the type of heavyweight action we want. Yeah. But So all those people got the extra cash. Good on all of you. You deserve more money than you get, but that's, yeah, that's true of everyone. So if you are interested in reading my round-by-round -round scoring and full report, it is in the MMAZona411mania.com. Please do give it a read if you are so inclined. All right, moving on. This Saturday, I mentioned before, early in the morning, UFC on ABC3. Uh, this is... This is not a bad card. There's some stuff here that makes me go, Ugh, but... Especially on the prelims. Yeah, there's some Ugh there. <laughs> but there's some good stuff, too. The main event I've been going back and forth on, actually, as I've been thinking about it. Featherweights... It's not outside the realm of possibility that we get our next featherweight title contender out of this fight, especially if it's Yair Rodriguez. But Brian Ortega fights Yair Rodriguez. And I said, I've been going back and forth on this one. <laughs> um, I like Brian Ortega's game in a lot of respects. But he's had two... He's only lost twice. And he's only lost to the two best featherweights in the world, Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky. That said, those losses were brutal. Max Holloway got made his corner stop that fight between rounds four and five. And there's a real chance, there's a real argument to me that his corner should have stopped it between rounds four and five when he fought Volkanovsky. He took a lot of damage in those fights. Uh, a lot. Uh, he's coming off of the loss to Volkanovski, but he's he is durable. That he he tends to take a lot of damage. And he's willing to engage in firefights like that. He's got good power though. He's got a good diversity of his striking offense uh, in terms of mixing up punches, elbows, kicks, and knees. He's not one-dimensional there. His defense is lacking. Uh, He's shown bits and pieces where it looked better. I mean, look, Max Holloway makes anyone who isn't Alexander Volkanovsky's defense look like crap. You know, look what he did to Calvin Cater. Calvin Cater does not have bad defense. Or you know, a lot of people. but you know, So Max can do that to pretty much anybody. I mean, Max stopped Jose Aldo twice, and Jose Aldo has amazing defense. And you know, Volkanovski beat the crap out of him. Volkanovski is the best featherweight in the world and maybe the best fighter in the world. I certainly think so. But he got into a little bit of a life-or-death fight at, at times with both Hanato Moicano and Cub Swanson. They both had success against him on the feet. So his defense isn't great. He is a... I've said this before about Ortega when talking about some of the things he does really, really well. His ability to go straight to the danger portion of a submission when he attacks it is amazing. 
You know, there, there's a procedure to everything you do when you attack a submission, especially if you get to jujitsu guys who are really good, and especially if they're teaching, they break those things down in excruciating detail at times, and consequently everything becomes a step. And you need to, so you, again, you go through the steps, and when you have to defend against someone who really knows how to attack, you need to know at different steps along the process how in how much trouble you are, what you know, defensive steps you can take to counter that, because those change depending on where you are and being in danger, etc., etc. Ortega's ability to go from, oh, I might be able to attack a neck here, to, oh, crap, I'm being choked, is, again, it is genuinely amazing. There's there's very few people who can do who can attack submissions like he can, and I genuinely mean this. Even amongst the professional, you know, the professional high-level grappler circuit, he is except he that skill is exceptional. Even amongst you know those kinds of people, whoever you happen to think the best grapplers in the world are, like that skill of his in even in those circles would be something to behold. He attacks like lightning, and he gets you to the point where you're in serious trouble in an instant. Look at how fast he jumps on someone's neck. It is quick. And he's not just jumping for it to jump for it. He has properly gone through all of what would be individual steps if you're being resisted or you're just still learning. He just gets to the near-finishing portion of that technique fast enough to make your head spin, and then your vision spinning because you're being choked. His takedown game, though, is something that has not been great. And it's been a bit of a problem for him in certain fights. Uh, he's just not great about getting you down. Which is kind of a shame because he is he is very good from top position. He's great... He's great for either position, actually. He's one of the few guys who is good on top and on bottom with his jiu-jitsu game. Uh, a lot of people are only really good in one of those phases. He's good, pretty good in both. But he can't always force things to be in that in that realm, which is to his detriment because if he could reliably, he would be a he'd be a much he'd be a bigger threat, I think, if he could reliably bring his most dominant and dangerous skill set to bear. He's fighting a guy who has gas tank issues, and I know Rodriguez fought Max Holloway for five rounds, and he didn't completely gas out, which was a little bit surprising to me. But he does have some cardio issues. He slowed down towards the end of that fight. Not as much as I expected to, but Max also didn't quite push the same pace I thought he would. Uh, Max got uh, Ortega, uh, Ortega uh, Yair down a fair bit, actually. Uh, it was one of the ways he was able to kind of neutralize Yair's kicking game. Yair's very dangerous, especially that first, like, round or so, round and a half. Yair is very dangerous. He is sharp. He is powerful. He is fast. Everything... The other thing about Rodriguez needs to be mentioned. Everything he does looks like it hurts. You know, some guys, they throw kicks and they connect, and you kind of go, yeah, that doesn't look pleasant, but, you know, that, that, clear, that doesn't look like it hurt that much. Yay Rodriguez throws kicks like he is trying to break down a door every time. And it's not really sustainable over the long term, but you can also never take for granted, all right, he's kicking me, this one isn't going to be that hard, I can kind of block it and we'll just keep going. Like You've got to be prepared every time he kicks, because if you're loose with your guard or you're not on 
point with it, he's going to slam some bony part of his leg into your body. Uh, Rodriguez's boxing is still not great. His defense isn't great. These two guys are going to do damage to each other. That's one of the only things about this fight I'm fairly confident. Those These two are going to mess each other up for as long as this lasts. Neither guy is great defensively. I think the longer this goes, the more I would favor Ortega. They've both gone five rounds a few different times at this point. So that bears acknowledging. But I, I, I just think Ortega's style lends itself to longer fights more than Rodriguez's. Uh, this is also a question about who's about uh, who the damage is caught up with more, because it's not like Rodriguez has not been getting beaten up. You know, Max Holloway did a pretty good number on him. Uh, Jeremy Stevens got to him at different points in their fight. You know, Frankie Edgar, Frankie Edgar hurt him a lot. He His fight with Chan Sung Jung in 2018 was a total war that he was losing until he scored that miraculous uh, kind of Hail Mary knockout. So these, these two are going to hurt each other. Uh, I'm going to lean towards Ortega just a bit, and I might feel very, very foolish about this, but here's part of my reasoning. If the striking isn't going the way of Rodriguez, he doesn't really have a secondary game he can go to. Ortega does. Um, I don't know if Ortega's been working his takedown game a whole lot. Hopefully he has, because it would benefit his career so much if he could reliably force you to grapple with him. That would that would be that makes him scary er than he is. Like that seriously would be a scary proposition to have to deal with him forcing you to go into his wheelhouse over and over and over again. But I he's also but you know to Ortega's credit, he's very opportunistic with what he does in that respect. There's a lot of very good jiu-jitsu guys who can't recognize opportunities the way that Ortega does. So they, they kind of get stuck in the I have to take you down to start things working, whereas Ortega does not think that way. If he sees an opportunity to jump on something anywhere, he will do it. I just, I'm going to, I said, I'm leaning towards Ortega, but that's a lean and I don't really know what's going to happen here. This this fight is either, this fight could be very, very good. I, I think there's some serious potential here for a blood and guts war. So we'll have to wait and see, but that's your main event. Very relevant fight at featherweight. Uh, very interesting fight. Co-main event. This is less interesting. Uh, Michelle Watterson will fight Amanda Lemos. What is that straw weight? Is she cutting back down? I want to say she tried flyweight. For her last fight, she tried flyweight. Okay, she's you know, she you know, she's back at strawweight here. She did that kind of on short notice. Um. Watterson is fighting Amanda Lemos. Lemos uh, got choked up by Jessica Andrade in her last fight. Lost to Leslie Smith in her debut, but had won five in a row, actually. Um, this might be the last... I can't say the last stand. This is something of a crossroads fight for Watterson. She's had some setbacks. If she's going to remain a relevant fixture around the title, she has to win this. And I'm going to pick Lemos. I I just think Waterson's time has probably passed. I, and Lemos is quite good. Uh, I won't be surprised if Waterson pulls this out, but 
this is a this is kind of a must win for her depending on what her goals are for her remaining time in the sport uh welterweight Lijing Liang and Muslim Salikov pretty good fight um Yeah, Jing Liang got kind of run over by Hamzat Shemaev in his last fight. He knocked out Ponzanibio before that. Lost to Neil Magny before that one. Um, my inclination here is to lean towards Salikov. Salikov's on a good winning streak. He's, what, 5-1 and one in the UFC? Yeah, uh, won his last five. I'm not going to sleep on Jing Liang. This is a very good fight in that respect. This is a very well-matched fight, but I am going to lean towards Salikov here. I think Jing Liang will get suckered into trying to strike with him a little bit too much, and Salikov's the much better striker, technically. and He might be the heavier puncher. Jing Liang has some power. I mean, people forget that that guy can crack, but I'm going to lean towards Salikov. Flyweight, Matt Schnell and Sumu Darji. Um... Schnell on a bit of a rough... He had a really good fight with Brandon Royval. Didn't last all that long, but they got fight of the night uh, back in May. Uh, he had some. He had a lot of success in that fight, and then just got caught in that guillotine by a very, very dangerous opponent. Uh, Sumu Darji's on a three-fight winning streak, but this represents a pretty significant step up in competition for him. He's fought Andre Sukumtot, Malcolm Gordon, and Zarek Adeshev. Um, yeah, Schnell is demonstrably better than those gentlemen. I'm going to lean towards Schnell, but uh, th this is a test for Sumu Darji more than anything else, and I'm just going to lean towards Schnell, who I like Schnell's game overall. I, I, he's a, I don't think he gets the respect he deserves because he kind of bounces between flyweight and bantamweight, and uh, he fights tough opposition and doesn't always win, but Schnell's pretty darn good. Featherweights, keep your eye on this one. Uh, if you... Tell me, you know, on paper, what's going to be fight of the night. This is my pick, followed probably by the main event. Shane Burgos and Charles Jordan. This is going to be nuts. Um, both men are strikers. Both men don't shy away from the fight. You know, Burgos has been in some serious blood and guts wars. Both, the, I mean, his last three fights. You know, his fight with Josh Emmett was kind of a knockdown dragout war. The fight with Barboza was... Fight with Quarantillo was. That fight was unfortunately positioned on UFC 268 to take place right after the utter insanity that was Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler. On any other fight card, and I absolutely mean this, any other fight card, Shane Burgos versus Billy Quarantillo from UFC 268 is your fight of the night. It just had to follow you know, one of the fights of the year. <laughs> like, genuinely one of the best fights all year. Uh, But he's, and then you've got Jordan, who's been kind of coming into his own lately. He's won his last two fights. He beat Lando Venata in a fairly impressive fashion. I'm going to lean towards Burgos, and I might be foolish to do so because, but I think Burgos's pressure will be a problem for Jordan. Jordan is a, he's a very good fighter. He's very technical. He's very athletic. Uh, but... I don't know how he's going to handle the pace that Burgos is going to insist that they fight. And I'm not sure how Jordan can deal with the physical damage. I might be wrong. He might hold up just fine, but that's kind of where my head is at the moment on him. So I'm going to lean towards Burgos, but circle that. Do not miss that fight. That 
that's your can't-miss fight of the evening on paper. Now watch it miss in practice because, you know, MMA, but on paper, like, that, that's the one. That's the one from this card. And kicking off the main card, this was supposed to take place at UFC 267 or whatever. Um, women's flyweight Lauren Murphy will welcome Misha Tate to the division. I... The fact that Lauren Murphy is as highly ranked in that division as she is is a pretty damning indictment on that division. Not that Lauren Murphy is some terrible fighter. She's not a terrible fighter. But when someone who fights like Lauren Murphy fights is one of your top contenders, that says a lot about everyone else. I think they gave Misha Tate this fight because it is very winnable for her on paper. And they kind of want to force you know, Misha into the title picture. I'm going to pick Tate here, but... That's what the UFC wants to happen. And Murphy is a very favorable stylistic matchup for Tate. So they're, they're kind of stacking things in her favor. That said, I'm going to be kind of pulling for Murphy just to upset the apple cart because it always amuses me when the UFC doesn't get what it wants most of the time. Not every time, because sometimes they want what you know I want and deserves to be acknowledged as such. But stuff like this, like, yeah, you know what? No, let me... I, I enjoy your apple cart being upset sometimes. <laughs> so picking Tate, this seems you know, kind of hand-picked for her to be... Murphy represents the right combination of stylistically favorable, somewhat known to people who care, and high enough ranked, but still all of those things favoring Tate. Uh, and I imagine... She... I'm going to rethink a little bit about... I would still favor Shevchenko to beat Misha Tate. But Tate's got a lot of high-end experience, which is something a lot of other opponents of hers have been lacking. But look, if Tate wins, they are going to give her the title shot. That division is somewhat bereft of challengers. I mean, look, Tyler Santos wildly overperformed relative to expectations of the vast majority of people. But they're not really going to do an immediate rematch if they can... If, if Murphy wins, I think they will do an immediate rematch. If Tate wins, they'll give it to Tate. It's kind of my read on that one. So that's your main card. As for the prelims, Ricky Simone and Jack Shore. It's a pretty good fight. Um, Jack Shore is undefeated, 16-0. and He has five wins in the UFC. He's been coming on recently. Uh, he's been doing real, he's been re really solid work. This is a big step up for him. And Ricky Simone is coming off of his win over Rafael Asensao. He stopped him with punches. This is a big test for sure. Simone has a motor. He's a relentless takedown artist. This is a tough one. This is a really tough fight. I think I'm going to lean towards Simone is kind of my hunch. But that's a, that's a close fight. That's a really good fight. Uh, middleweight, Dalcha Lungiambula and Punahele Soriano. Uh, Soriano, I guess. That That is your let's just hope this ends quickly fight of the evening. Uh, featherweight, Bill Algio and Herbert Burns. Pretty easy way to, pretty easy lean towards Algio here. Um, he's been a bit up and down in the UFC, but I think pretty highly of Algio's overall ability. He's had some tough he's had some tough matchups. Burns coming off of that loss to Daniel Pineda. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Picking Algeo here. Light heavyweight Dustin Jacoby and Daun Jung. I appreciate the old Iron Turtle, Daun Jung. Uh, I believe he's the Iron Turtle. I think he changed his nickname recently. Uh, he has not lost in the UFC yet. He knocked out Kennedy uh, Zuchukwu with elbows November of last year. It was a really nice finish, actually. But I don't think he's got the technical chops to hang with Jacoby, and I don't think he's got the overall to hang with Jacoby striking, and I'm not sure he's in a position to force Jacoby to just wrestle him uh, continuously. So I'm going to lean Jacoby here. Middleweight, Dwight Grant and Dustin Stoltzfus. Kind of a must-win for Stoltzfus. He is 0-3 in the UFC with losses to Kyle Dawkins, Adolfo Vieira, and Gerald Merchart. Whereas Grant, not exactly in the best spot. Uh, his UFC record is 3-4 on a two-fight losing streak. I'm going to pick Grant here just because I have not been terribly impressed with Stoltzfus thus far. But, you know, desperate men, you know, you know, the old cliche about uh, dangerous or animals that are cornered being the most dangerous. Stoltzfus has to know his back is against the wall here, so. Welterweight, Philip Rowe and Abubakar Nurmagomedov. This is a pretty solid fight, actually, for, you know, lower-ish and welterweights. Uh, Philip Rowe is 2-1 and one in the UFC. He lost his debut to Gabe Green, but he rebounded nicely with wins over Orion Kose and Jason Witt, both of those stoppages. Whereas Abubakar Nurmagomedov has gone one and one in the UFC. He dropped his debut. He was be he actually was doing a number on David Zavada before he got caught in that triangle choke. Um, and he he pretty much beat the crap out of Jared Gooden. Uh, this is not an easy fight for Roe, but I am uh, not an easy fight for Nurmag for either of them. Uh, this is I think a little bit tougher for Roe, so I'm gonna lean towards Nurmagomedov, but yeah, and lean Nurmagomedov. And kicking off the entire card. Jessica Penne, women's strawweight. Jessica Penne and Emily Ducati. Um, Penne just is... Uh, she's won, she won twice last year, beating Lupita Godinez via split decision. And then she submitted Karolina Kovalkiewicz. Uh, Ducati is making her UFC debut. She had a pretty extensive run in Bellator. Lost more than she won, but she fought Alimile McFarlane twice. Uh, then she's coming off of a run in Invicta, where she was the strawweight champion. That currently lost in Invicta was a split decision. She's on a three-fight winning streak. Uh, not an easy fight. I think I'm going to lean towards Ducati. Uh, it's kind of at the point where I don't really pick Jessica Penne to win. Just a really unfortunate thing to say because she's been around for a long time and she's not a bad fighter, but we're just talking predictions. So I'm going to pick Ducati, but that's a pretty stiff test for a debut. That's a pretty stiff test for a UFC debut. All right, that's it. That's the card as it currently stands. Again, I will have coverage in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com Saturday morning. Prelims begin at 11 a.m. Eastern. Just reiterating that. So stop by, say hello. Hopefully, uh, you know, help wake me up. <laughs> I will see you all there again, hopefully. All right, let's move on to news of the week. Uh, this got a little bit of play during the week, but it was after I recorded the shows last week, so I didn't get to talk about it. But um, movie star, actor Chris Pratt was in attendance for UFC 267. 
and was asked about for his thoughts on the main event, where Adesanya is reluctant to defeat Jared Cannonier, and he wasn't terribly complimentary. Uh, he said he didn't care much for the pitter-patter stuff and whatnot, and Adesanya, he, he apologized after the fact. Someone asked him for his reaction. He's on camera. He gave it. And he didn't say anything that a lot of other people didn't say. For the record, he was not—he was not at all on the. In fact, you could argue he took the popular position, or that's unfair. That because that—the way I phrase that implies that he took it because it was popular. His position was in line with a lot of people's after that fight. So again, after the fact, he apologized uh, for some of the tenor of what he said. Adesanya. That was kind of asked about this at the post-fight press conference, and he, I, I didn't talk about this when I re, when I talked about uh, the event, but Adesanya, th- this has become a bit more apparent, like in the weeks after. Adesanya's back is up a little bit about this one, like his hackles are up about some of the criticism that was levied at him around this performance, and in fairness to his position, some of the criticism levied at him has been unfair, and it's been one-sided, ignoring the responsibility uh, that would fall on Jared Cannonier for how the fight turned out. But he he took some of this criticism, I, I mean, saying he took it personally might be an exaggeration, but he was not... He has taken similar criticism in other fights with a different... Uh, tenor to what he has said with a different uh, outlook his again it felt like his hackles were up a little bit on this one but anyway he said you know shut up i can do what you do you can't do what i can do Uh, and this is where i have to this is where i now feel compelled to comment Uh, again pratt apologized after the uh, a little bit later for again some of the specifics about what he said but to to Israel Adesanya, sir, I appreciate the fact that you have been the subject of some very mean-spirited, bad faith, and frankly, in some cases, unfair criticism. For a lot of his... People forget this, man. For a lot of his UFC career, there's been a fairly significant chunk of the fan base, and I don't just mean in terms of you know, vocally, I mean numerically, that has been very critical of him, that does not like him, and that has been kind of, you know, the the hyenas waiting for him to fail. The number of people, and I remember this, who did the he got exposed by Jan Blachowicz thing. That was a real talking point that a lot of people, a lot of fans, were bringing up, which is somewhat ridiculous. So, I understand you have been the subject of unfair criticism. You live a giant chunk of your life in the public eye. I, do, I don't envy anyone that. That sucks. And I get that you are pushing back. And I get that there's a lot of people. And this this cut, what I'm about to say cuts both ways here. So let me get to my point. But you, sir, cannot act. I guarantee it. Now, if your point, this is something that fighters do a lot. And it's not just Adesanya. This is, this is an observable pattern about a lot of fighters. Fighters have very, as a general rule, fighters have pretty thin skins. You know, look at, um, I think both Michael Bisbing and Daniel Cormier have commented on this. You know, and let's be clear about those two gentlemen, 
they were pretty uppity. Uppity's the wrong phrase there. Um, they were sensitive. They were quick to lash out and bite back against criticism that was levied at them. I remember Bisbing being pissed about people talking about his lack of punching power consistently. You know, uh, when he beat Yoshihiro Akiyama years ago, uh, couldn't finish him, but won the fight cleanly, clear unanimous decision. He kind of busted up Akiyama's face, and one of the first things he said at his post-fight interview, not in the cage, like the press conference, was, you know, people say I can't punch. Well, ask Akiyama if I can punch. Like, he, you know, that kind of, I think that criticism kind of ate at him. You know, he was very quick to defend himself in those respects and to kind of lash out. Daniel Cormier was the same way. And I'm sure they had their reasons. If you ask them about them, I'm sure they'd tell you. Or even if they couldn't remember them specifically, if you ask them, you know, about their mindset and whatnot at the time, they would, ha- they could tell you why they did what they did, why they behaved the way they behaved. Both of them become media members. They are part of the broadcast team. They do fighter interviews. They, again, they do commentary and whatnot. And since taking on that responsibility and that job, they have, in the course of doing that job, said things that fighters did not like and other fighters have lashed out at them. And I think they, if you were to ask them about this, they would probably tell you, yes, fighters are very sensitive. We're not operating in bad faith. We are, but... If we think your fight's not great, if we think there's this problem, if we see something, we're going to say it because that's what we're doing. We are meant to broadcast. Our job is to call the action and tell the story of the fight. Our job is not to make you look good. Our job is not to make you feel good. And there's a lot of fighters that have just very thin skins. And one of the constant deflections about this is, well, if you don't fight, if you don't train, shut up. Which is ridiculous. You see this, you see this in any field, wherein your profession is subject to public criticism. When I say public criticism, I don't mean you know the average Joe. I mean there are professional critics, people who do who write music and who perform music. Say this about music critics. People who are people who are actors. People who make movies. There's a number of actors and directors and whatnot who are of the opinion that if you haven't made a movie, your criticism of film is invalid. These people exist. And this is true of fighters. This has been true of boxers, too, by the way, just for the record. Like this is not I'm not singling out MMA fighters as crybabies. They're not. But there is this... Again, there is... And this is... Uh, it amuses... That particular line, again, that line of reasoning amused me in particular about, you know, Cormier and Bisbing and Dominic Cruz and all of these... Ex-fighters, some of them, most of them ex-champ, all those three in particular, ex-champions. You know, there were fighters who weren't happy with when Randy Couture would do commentary. There were fighters who were not happy with him. You know, that guy's one of the all-time greats. And he's going to call the action as he sees it. There's a, there were a lot of fighters who just, and you can't say it anymore. You can't say, well, if you don't fight, shut up. A lot of these people are significantly more successful and more talented than you are. So you come up with some other thing that you can gripe about because you just don't want to hear criticism. And I understand that because I understand how difficult it is to do what MMA fighters do. That is so many hours of training, so much pain, so much emotional stress, so much mental stress, so much physical stress. 
and it all distills to a singular moment in time, somewhere between 15 and 25 minutes, wherein you must, wherein everything you do, everything you are, everything you have worked for, is now under the microscope of people who lack context, who don't know your pain, who don't know your journey, who don't know any of that, who then talk about what you did. And on an emotional level, I understand. I do. And when it comes to fighting at all, much less fighting professionally, much less fighting professionally at the highest level, the vast majority of humanity do not even begin to understand how difficult that is. Uh, there's a famous, you know, the, the satirical news site, The Onion, has what one of their like best headlines ever was, you know, local man overestimates his fighting ability by 4,000%. This is true. Like, again, it's The Onion, it's satirical, it's overblown, but that sentiment is incredibly true. Fighting is one of two things that people, mostly men, not exclusively, but mostly, think they are good at by virtue of existing. There is no respect given to the skill of fighting as a general. The number of people I know who have, I have heard say, I can handle myself if I have to fight. And I know they can't. I know they can't. <laughs> In fact, uh, I'm trying to insult this guy because I love Mark. But Mark Radlich at one point was like, you know, I think if I had to, I could maybe tie up and kind of stall out most, you know, MMA fighters. We were talking about, like, some crazy feat of athletic strength that Yoel Romero had done. Again, Yoel Romero looks like a superhero. That guy was drawn from... Looks like he was, you know, chiseled out of stone, a comic book character, whatever descriptor you want to throw there. But, you know... And I, again, I love Mark. He's one of my best friends in the whole world. But no. You no. And, and Mark's trained a little bit. Uh, and he, um, but again, no. Uh, and again, men in particular, because I don't know why this is in particular. I don't know what, you know, combination of biology and culture exists in men, but this is true, like, it's somewhat true cross-culturally that men understand... I think because men understand that, you know, the propensity for violence and understand that we are expected to be the ones meeting violence. So it, it's a, it takes up a little bit more of our headspace. To say nothing of, you know, the fact that testosterone influences all of this, and testosterone will make you quite... Testosterone makes you do stupid things. As a general rule, it influences you to do stupid things. There's a lot of other things that are not, you know, that are great. It's a necessary hormone. But um, I, I saw someone describe it as testosterone makes, makes you think it's a good idea to jump in a wagon with three of your buddies, like, like a, a, you know, the little red, like, wagons, and ride down a hill in it. You know, do the old Calvin and Hobbes. Like, that's what testosterone does. And it's it's really kind of true. Uh, so, but, it, it, you know, men tend to, and because we think we should be good at fighting, because we're men, we think we are. We have seen 
you know, we watch, you know, whether you watch just the stylized you know, movie violence or you watch actual fights or whatnot, the assumption is I know how to fight. I could handle myself if things go down. Bull. Absolute bull. Uh, for anyone out there who might be considering, I, I promise I'm getting to the point. I know this is a little bit rambly, but if you're curious about how much of a martial art you need for effective self-defense, is one of those things. Again, if you if you are concerned about being attacked, I got news for you. You do not need to be a jujitsu black belt to defend yourself against the vast majority of humanity. You don't need it. You don't need a brown belt. You don't even really need a purple belt. If you're a good blue belt, congratulations. You know pretty much everything you're going to need to know if you have to defend yourself in a real-world scenario. Now, this is... Don't get me wrong. There's complications here. I'm aware of that. I'm aware that, you know, okay, weapons complicate things. Multiple attackers complicate things. Like, I'm... But just hear me out on this. If your primary concern is I need to know what to do and need to feel confident in myself against the average human being, if you have a legitimate jujitsu blue belt, congratulations. You can pro- you can beat most other people on the planet. That's reality. When you get to like purple. And for those of you who may not necessarily remember this, the jujitsu uh, rank belt rankings is white, blue, uh, yeah, white, blue, purple, brown, black, then red. But you don't need to be a black belt. You really don't. Like the stuff you learn and you drill and you work when you're a black belt is stuff to f- compete against other black belts. If you're, if you get jumped by a guy in a bar. When you, again, something on the street kind of pops off. You don't need to know how to apply a reverse bow and arrow choke or the intricacies of De La Hiva versus reverse De La Hiva and how your entries into leg entanglements come out of 50-50, you know, uh, out of the saddle versus 50-50 to the extent there's a difference. Like, you don't need so much of what you learn and what you do and what you drill as a black belt. It is so unnecessary to defend yourself against the random person who decides he wants to throw a punch at you. Or if you get into a fight at a... Again, you don't need it. You don't need it. If you are a, if you have a legitimate blue belt, you can handle yourself one-on-one against the vast majority of the human race. Straight up. If you... If you're, you know, do boxing or kickboxing, if you have a good instructor... Six to eight months. If you train and you spar and you, again, you focus, I don't necessarily mean hard, but, you know, if you're three times a week, six to eight months with a good boxing or kickboxing instructor uh, and, and again, all the other associated training, you can handle yourself against pretty much, again, most of humanity. You can handle them. Most people have never been hit in the face. Most people have never hit another human being or been hit. Most people don't know what it feels like. Most people don't know how to brace themselves. This is why if you ever watch fights in the street, if somebody doesn't land a clean punch in the first three or not even seconds, 
watch these fights. They're all of, they're on YouTube, or you know, there's like a whole subreddit that's just about you know, uh, fights that take place in reality. If somebody doesn't land something clean in the first like three or four punches, one, everybody's paddling the invisible canoe, which is a mockery about your punching technique. Second, they're throwing 50 strikes in like four seconds. None of them are landing. Or if they're landing, they're certainly not landing clean. Then you hug. Then you fall to the ground. Then you hope everyone pulls you apart because neither of you knows what you're doing down there. And this is far and away the vast majority of physical violence. Weapons change things? I know. And I... But... You don't need a whole lot to be able to deal with the average person. This does not mean you can attend one seminar and feel good. You do have to train. You have to put in the effort. I've been... uh, I don't delve into my own martial arts journey a lot here because it's not usually relevant, but since I'm talking about this, I started training again uh, almost four years ago. Four years in November. Now, my, I do not attend a very hardcore school. I'm happy that I'm in better shape than I was. I'm down, I, the first, you know, year or so, I lost 20-some-odd pounds. Most of that in the first, like, handful of months, because that's how weight loss works, actually. You lose a lot up front. I lost weight. I am more flexible. I am stronger. And fun friends and fitness is a perfectly valid reason to join a martial arts gym. I am also, for the most part... I'm not, let me be clear about what I'm about to say. There's a lot of people who could beat the crap out of me. I know some of them. And there's a lot of, you know, complicating factors if you wind up in a fight, if you wind up in a self-defense situation, for instance, like that. But I am not actually all that worried about, especially if you do what, you know, some people do when they choose to fight illegally, you know, fight in the street. Somebody squares up, somebody tries a punch, and it winds up just kind of like one-on-one. I'm not terribly concerned about most people if that's what they want to do. I don't want to fight anybody. Again, this is not me looking for a fight. I don't want to be in a fight. I haven't been in a fight since I was in junior high. Last time I was in kind of a physical fight. You know, junior high kids. You know, it was a physical altercation. I wouldn't necessarily call it a fight. So I am, you know, like two decades removed from my last, I've sparred, but my last like serious, quasi-serious fight, you know, way removed from it. I don't want to be in a, fi- in a fist fight with anyone, uh, certainly not under those circumstances. I might look for, you know, something to compete, but I, mean, I don't, I don't want that. So when I say I'm not terribly concerned about how I might have to handle myself, that's not me saying I can beat up the world. It's me saying I spar somewhat regularly. You know, I drill. I train. If somebody wants to throw hands at me, I might get beat. That's certainly a possibility. You never, that's one of the, you never know who you're squaring up against if you choose to fight like that, but... I have a degree of competence relative to the average untrained person who thinks that, who just gets angry and wants to, you know, throw a punch and then clinch up and hope people pull, so people separate us because I don't know what I'm doing on the ground. 
And all that is to say, again, what professional fighters, most people don't understand anything about what it takes to be good at even the barest bit of real fighting. To say, to say nothing of fighting at the level that Israel Adesanya operates at. So, very true, what, there's very few people who can do what Israel Adesanya does. This notion that because you can fight, you can do other things, however, is profoundly untrue, and I'm going to stick up for actors here. The other reason I feel compelled to comment, because you know, not only again, do I train a, a little bit, I know what it takes to... I'm not an actor, preface this, but I know what it takes to be a good actor, much less a great actor. Chris Pratt is a very good actor. Acting is an incredibly difficult job, and people don't think about it in those terms because they see the final product, they see the glitz, they see the glamour, they don't see how many takes you do. They don't see the long hours. They don't see the early call times. They don't understand what it takes to put yourself in a emotional state to do whatever is necessary for the shoot that day. If the first scene you're shooting that day is the most emotional thing in the movie, and it's, you know, sometimes those are the first things you shoot all movie. You got to show up on set day one ready to tap into that part of the human experience and relate that through the camera to the audience. And then you go shoot something lighthearted. And like, it is very, very difficult to be an actor and people don't realize this. So the notion that Adesanya could do what Chris Pratt does, is he, Mr. Adesanya? You are one of the best fighters in the world. You are a spectacular striker. I am in awe of what you do. You are not an actor, and you could not do what Chris Pratt does. Which needs to be said there. So, again, Adesanya seems to be a little bit done with elements of the criticism levied at him, which he's dealt with it for a long time. And, again, he's dealt with a lot of it that's bad faith. Like I said, I stand by what I said about the fight with Cannoneer, so take that for whatever that's worth. But those two had a little bit of a public thing that I thought deserved a little bit of discussion here, so... Moving on, uh, let's see, okay, we got a little bit of an update on Alexander Volkanovsky. He will be undergoing uh, surgery. He broke one of his thumbs, I think his left, in the second round of his fight with Max Holloway. Bear in mind, the fact that he went on to continue to do what he did for the rest of that fight with a broken thumb, um, if you weren't in awe of what he did before, be in awe more now. And if you were already... Pile on a little bit more respect to that, man. Uh, so he's going to be out for a little bit while he gets that fixed surgically. That does, that removes a potential complicating factor from the lightweight title picture for probably the rest of the year. Uh, and depending on the surgery, any potential complications and whatnot, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's going to be a big deal, but it does take a piece off of the board as far as lightweight goes. All uh, right, a minor note on some uh, fight announcements here. Darren Till is out of his fight. He was supposed to fight Jack Hermanson later this month. Yes, yeah, later in July, towards the end of towards the end of the month. The London card he was supposed to be on. Uh, let me double check that. Yeah, yeah, the twenty third. So, anyway, he fell out of that fight. Some kind of an injury. Uh, I believe knee injury. That guy can't stay healthy. Uh, in steps instead, the action man, Chris Curtis. He will fight Jack Hermanson. Pretty big step up for Curtis, but good on him. 
That's a downgrade for the local crowd. Again, that fight is taking place in London, and Darren Till is a fairly big star in the UK. But if we're talking, if we're just talking about, you know, purely the fight on paper, it's kind of a lateral move. So we'll have a full preview of that event next week. Uh, but yeah, so be on the lookout for that. All right. That's all I have written down. Let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken while we've been recording. If not, we will do plugs and we will get out of here. Nope, nothing MMA related. All right. Plugs. Last week, there was a Damn You Hollywood for Minions, The Rise of Gru. That was myself and Mark Radulich. We had a we had a fun time. We got a little bit of a trip down memory lane because the Minions franchise, the entire Despicable Me franchise, has led, has led to some interesting podcasts between myself and Mark. So uh, this one was no different, even though The Rise of Gru is not exactly hefty material. Uh, but you can listen to our review of that over on Damn You Hollywood. This week is Thor Love and Thunder. God help me. Uh, that's going to be me, Mark, I believe Alexis Haina, and then David Wright. Let me double check that. I would like to be certain. Uh, not Alexis, just me, Mark, and David. So that will be this Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's over on the W2M Network or wherever you're listening to this, Punch in Damn You Hollywood on a podcast catcher. You'll find it there. Again, if you want to see it live. Uh, Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube, all under the, again, W2M Network. So give uh, Twitter, too, actually, for those of you who do the Twitter live thing. Uh, you can find it there. We will be having a discussion about that. Should be something. Haven't seen the movie yet. We'll see it before we review it, of course. Other than that, my usual spate of coverage this week. US, so that's AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW, they have Kings of Coliseum this week on Thursday. And WWE SmackDown on Friday. Boy, was last SmackDown terrible. I gave it a not-so-good rating, and I think I was generous, actually. Uh, not a good show. See if this week can rebound or not. But I will have that. And then, of course, Saturday morning, UFC on ABC3. We will be back here next week for a review of UFC on ESP, UFC on ABC3 and a preview of UFC on ESPN Plus 66. Again, that's their return to the O2 Arena in London. Headlined by Curtis Blades and Tom Aspinall. So full preview next week. That card looking, actually. Uh, you know, that's not a bad card. I don't think there's anything great. I mean, Aspinall and Blades is a very relevant heavyweight fight. If Tom Aspinall blows through Curtis Blades the way he's been taking out everybody else, it'll be a big statement for him. It'll be a big statement. Uh... But you know, there's nothing great on paper, but there's not that much that makes me... Yeah, there's actually not a whole lot there that's kind of bad. So, full preview next week. Hopefully the card holds together. <laughs> uh, yeah. Alright, until then, thank you all very, very much. I always appreciate it. See you next time. As always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.